Welcome to Managing Marketing, and we're still in London. We're here for Good Brief Week, and I'm chatting to a good friend of mine, Debbie Morrison, Director of Consultancy and Best Practice at ISPA. Hi, Debbie. Hello, how are you? I'm well, and we've just had a great session this morning. We did. It was really good. I was very surprised. <laughs> what, um, what amazes me is your role at ISBA has really evolved and changed over the years in response to your members' needs, hasn't it? Well, it's had to because the market's very different. I mean, you know, our members no longer want basic advice on how to pitch for a big creative agency. They're grappling with major issues like marketing structure, like how do we remain relevant in a digital-led world, uh, a real-time marketing world. And so, you know, we've had to evolve and so have all of our products. So um, a lot of what we do is, is based on giving, I think, 21st century advice to maybe some 20th century based structures and businesses. Well, look, yeah, but, you know, the amazing thing for me is that a lot of the similar sorts of organisations around the world, and I'm not going to name them, are still very much doing the sort of housekeeping rather than responding. Mm. And and what, it, you know, obviously that comes from some personal drive on your part, but also the organisation supporting that, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, we have over 2,000 conversations every year with our members. So we're right. just responding to what they're telling us. And, you know, I won't say it's easy. You know, I get into work on a Monday morning and the inside of my head looks like a Jackson Pollock painting. And then I have to start sort of unpicking it and making sense of it. But that's only what our advertiser members are facing every day. And we're sort of like, I suppose we're like a fulcrum. So we're out there in the world getting, meeting people, seeing lots of ideas, understanding what agencies have done what, what clients have done innovative things, and it all filters into ISBAR, and then we try and make a bit of sense of it and put it back out into the membership. So it's a bit like, um, I guess they're learning from each other all the time, but sometimes they only see what they see Whereas we, ISBAR team, are out there in the world, I think we're sort of seeing everything and that's why my head is so jumbled when <laughs> well, I get yeah, into I was going to say, because you are well connected globally, yeah. you know, you're travelling, you're uh, talking to people, you know, in, in the US, around, across Europe and even in Asia, you know, I feel... Uh, I feel uh, honoured to be part of your network, oh, I guess, of people you. that uh, you, know, you, you talk with and we share ideas and, and sh um, identifying trends and things like that. Well, the world's a small place. I mean, I know we're the UK organisation, but most of the people we work with, the senior people, have morphed in their roles. They may have been responsible just for UK, but now a lot of them are responsible for global communications or global marketing or pan-European or EMEA or whatever it is. So we can't just be solely focused on what's happening in the UK. Uh, it's not the way the world goes now. You know, the internet makes the world one global market, so we need to be um, in tune with it all. Because mm. the, the board, as you come into the ISBAR office here of your members, it's it's very representative. So in, in a lot of countries, uh, organisations are inclined to just 
represent yeah. the biggest advertisers. You seem to have at Isbar a real spread of you know traditional global brands, local English or uh, um, British brands, and also you know everything in between. Yeah, we've got charities. I mean, we feel on the issues side of what we're doing when we're talking to governments and in the EU that we have to be representative of all types of advertiser. And sometimes some of the big bigger companies do the more innovative things because they've got a bigger bigger funds to restructure to do things and so you know we watch what they're doing and we use that information to really uh, I, I, I guess um, um, get the smaller brands interested in changing and, mm. and what they do in the world but I think we have to be representative and also it's really great because we've started to get some of the new um, digital based companies joining the Googles we're talking with Facebook we're talking with, uh, we've, we've got some online businesses joining because they feel like they oddly want the respectability of the traditional brand area. Uh, but, you know, our, our traditional brands can learn from them and they yeah. can learn from the traditional brands. So. Well, there is something about belonging, you know, this sense of belonging. I think marketers, because, you know, globally and locally, we're confronted with such huge challenges. You know, technology is driving a lot of it, and these companies you're talking about yeah. are the, the the people that are bringing about those changes. But it's something that uh, I've found in my role at Australian Marketing Institute that people really are wanting to share ideas a lot more. They're trying to learn from each other because I think there's a realization that you can't do it all yourself. Yeah, so we, we have a great spirit amongst our membership. They're always wanting to share ideas. We, we do this thing called a round robin. So if we get, we get approached by one of our members and it's a question that we don't know the answer to, we know the answer to that is outside in our membership somewhere. So we will push that question out into the whole membership sphere on an anonymous basis. And what we'll do is gather the experience of those other marketers out there who may have encountered that before. The information comes back in, we anonymize it, and everybody who's taken part will um, share, will in, share the, in the yeah. answers. So there again, even though they've inputted, it, they may learn something different from somebody else who's answered that question. And we've just pushed that onto our website so that it can be a searchable tool okay. for our members. So. Uh, so they realise the benefit in sharing. And of course, everybody's isolated in their own organisation. They know what they know. They know what some of their colleagues know, but they don't actually know the total picture on what's happening out there. So this gives them access to a much broader um, base of knowledge. And that goes straight to part of your title, best practice, yeah. you know, because best practice exists in what people are doing out there. But uh, I guess it's also your network of uh, experts or you know specialists that gives you next practice, which is what are the trends that are coming. You know, one of the, yeah. the challenges I think marketers find is you know you're busy doing what you're doing. Where do you get the inspiration or yeah. the ideas for where you could be going? We do a lot in next practice, and we particularly this year done a lot on visioning projects. So mm -hmm. uh, we did a big project on media 2020 and how advertisers are preparing for a very different ecosystem and that's thrown up again a lot of um, a lot of issues around structure and and what's happening in the world so we're doing these sort of projects all the time we did a big project on um, how what our members felt about their um, their creative agencies because we were getting a lot of feedback from them moaning about you know, agencies not agile enough they're not cost effective enough to work with us in this 
this market. So we did a big project. We laid those problems and things that they'd expressed to us but wouldn't express to their agencies mm. on the agency community. And um, they weren't happy about it. But what we're seeing now is, you know, agencies changing their basis of operation. And it's more relevant to what our members were saying, you know, we can't have a six-month development process for a campaign anymore. It does not exist, you know, not in their minds. Yeah. So therefore, you agency have got to change the way that you operate. And so have we client. It doesn't, it's not, you know, one or the other. It's both of them have to um, change the way that they're structured. It's funny though, isn't it, how often marketers will feel, clients will feel that they can't give that direct feedback. Um, I know. You know, they either don't feel confident enough or they feel that uh, they're going to upset the agency. So the, the role of facilitating that, making it anonymous, but also building some you know, overall industry trends, one makes it more compelling. And as you said, the agencies may not like it, but when you're confronted with you know, quite compelling evidence that this is a trend, what do you do? Well, I think, I think it's quite sad that the clients blame the agencies because actually it's both parties that need to make, you know, to do things differently. Um, but, you know, and they do like to moan. Clients like a good moan every now and again. So we're here to, you know, enable them to moan if they want to, but to provide them with some solutions and some mm. ideas on how to do things differently. Or, you know, an example is for years we've written model contracts and they've all been siloed. So there's a creative contract, a media yeah. contract, a PR contract, etc. But over the last year, we've just launched new contracts for the way that clients work with their agencies now. They don't just work on one discipline. Yeah, and so this is a framework contract. It's got uh, for creative on and offline. It's got for the first time described social media because we saw people were just putting... Uh, yeah, you can do social media as another line on a, on a scope of services in their contract, but it just didn't describe things properly. Mm. And now the contract, you can also lay in the simple app development, simple web projects, uh, and you know PR if you want it, and all the things that you might need in your marketing armory. And the other thing that we've done this year too is ensure that those contracts you can add in extra projects as and when you need them without having to renegotiate the entire contract. So right. we've called them Retainer Plus yeah. because the plus bit is that you can add in more things as you need them because I think, you know, the, the world's going to converge. I just think clients are adding in more and more agencies on their roster. They're spending more and more time managing agencies in a comms market, more comms market that is more and more complex. And I think the whole thing's going to implode. I think we may be going back to full service if we get the trust between the client and the agency right. Because, yeah. you know, they can't. Their heads are like mine as well. You know, they're all like Jackson Pollock paintings. How do you make sense of the whole thing? We've you, noticed that yeah, trend. We've you? absolutely noticed the trend of uh, they diversify, diversify until they've got way too many agencies. In fact, in the last uh, six months, we've done two major projects, 180 different suppliers for one client, and we got that down to 27. Yeah, yeah. And even it was, 27 is too many well, if you think about it, but you know, Not just agencies, more, yeah. we're talking okay. about print companies yeah. and everything. That yeah, was yeah. 180. Every single supplier that yeah. the marketers were using came to 180. We got it down to 27. Of that, core agencies were about six. 
you know, yeah. media creative, uh, PR, you know, the, 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 core, the core requirement. It has to happen. They had multiple digital agencies, multiple PR agencies. But here's the other thing, and, and following up on what you said, they had a variation of no contract to incredibly uh, laborious, difficult, yeah. uh, unworkable contracts. And when we first asked the marketing team about contracts, they all sort of stared at the ceiling and at each other mm. because no one had actually bothered to care whether they had contracts. Yeah, so that's one of the reasons why we've put our frameworks together. So you can have consistency across all your, all your companies you work with. But we're also working on, um, which we're going to launch next year, a uh, vlogger and a blogger contract because again yeah. we've talked to our membership and they're using botched up sort of um, slung together uh, employment contracts or talent contracts which just aren't fit for that purpose so mm -hmm. uh, next year we'll be launching that and we're working with the talent industry on that so Gleam who are a vlogger's talent agency because they too want greater um, systems in place for their vloggers yeah. so look well, it creates clarity Clar absolutely. and responsibilities yeah. you know so that people know what they're being paid for what yeah. their rights and responsibilities are under the contract so that's one of the things that we do yeah, is we're right. listening constantly to all of these things and we i guess we um we then try to create better practice or next practice from what we've heard from what people need so this is you know I, the first point for me was good um good pitch yeah, and what's that? Is that three years ago? Or two yeah, years? it's three, three years, years ago. And we did think that we might do good pitch week, you know, again. But actually, what we realised was that um, it doesn't matter how keen your procurement person is going in to negotiate a, a great um, deal for you. If your um, brand teams are poor at briefing, then, you know, all of the iterations are just going to be eating up the funds that you, mm. you know, your funds, your agency funds. So we decided instead of doing the pitch week again, that we would focus on um, highlighting some great briefing practices and really get people talking about briefing because I think what was evident from our conversations is that nobody spends any time thinking about briefing and how they can be better, but actually it's the complete bedrock of what mm. you do. It's how do you evaluate and judge what's created if you don't have a really great brief with KPIs and an expression of what you were trying to achieve. Uh, what well, start, middle and end yeah. of the process yeah. is all based on the brief and it yet is. it is something, I think you asked uh, in the session last night how many people had actually been trained yeah. formally in writing a brief. How, there was a handful of people. It was probably it? about a third of the room, wasn't yeah. it? But you know, I think generally they just don't, I, mean, I hate this concept that there isn't time to write a brief. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely naff. You know, if you haven't got time to write a brief properly, then you shouldn't be doing your job. We, we have a saying, uh, we ne there's never time to get it, um, get it right, but there's always time to fix it. Yeah. And that's the sort of mindset that leads to, I'll just throw a few things down, I'll text the brief through, <laughs> and then down the track when it all goes wrong, then we'll, get, we'll shape it up. Yeah. yeah. 
And then once we'd started thinking about briefing, we then started to think about all the different elements of it. Like, and one of the uh, marketing directors I was talking to said, oh my God, you know, you've got real problems with the youngsters coming into the industry. They're not interested in briefing. They don't think they own it. They think that that's the agency's territory. Mm. And that's just bizarre. You know, and even my own son, who's just started working in advertising, says that his clients ask him to write all the briefs. He says they'll give him a call and then he's got to interpret it, and which is just completely mental. But people are just not getting the training. Unless you work in a P&G or a Unilever or a Mars and they have a very formal grad training scheme where they will, you know, yeah train you in the PNG way of briefing, etc. I think most companies just don't pay any attention to it. And it's just learning on the job. And, you know, it's not going to drive great value for you unless you've put some effort into it. So, um, yeah, so whose brief is it anyway? I'm not sure that the industry knows. And again, you know, all the young people coming through work very differently. So, so there's, um, you, you said before, it's both parties are responsible. And, and this is probably a subtle point of, uh, of disagreement mm-hmm. because, you know, I talk about the golden rule and that is the man with the gold makes the rules. <laughs> okay, so we always operate on the basis that the marketer with the budget is actually in the ideal position to change structure, to change process, to change and set and change expectations that ultimately 100% resides with the marketers, the clients, because they are the ones that have the power to change the game. Well, they should be. And and you tend to find that agencies mirror the client's structure and the way that they operate. Mm. But I think so many clients are now scratching their heads about what their structure should be. You know, the agencies are scratching their heads at the same time because I don't think it's landed. And I don't think... I don't think structures will land because I think things are evolving so quickly that everything will continue to evolve. So I worked with Unilever in 2010 on on their new marketing structure. And it hasn't remained static since that point. It's changed and morphed many times since then. And then we've got this like big fat middle, I call them, in the UK of brands who are not even thinking about what they should do. Because I think their marketing director looks at the scale of change that's required and they think about their tenure in the role, and it's probably not long enough for them to take any actions. So at the moment, I think they're doing things that we call adding digital bling, rather than <laughs> looking at should we become a digital business. So yeah. they're, they're adding on little bits of shiny digital, oh, we would have a social media over here, yeah. and whatever, but it isn't addressing the core issues of what they need to do to their own structure in order to be fit to operate going forward. And I just think that they think they're not going to be there long enough to make the difference. That will be the next person's role. But I think as the young people who are digital natives now are coming up through the ranks and that when they take over, I don't think that they will accept the structure of what they've got now because, you know, there are too many silos and that can't operate. You can't operate in, in, a, in a siloed fashion in this uh, in this world well that's one of the key areas for us and and we've been getting a lot of traction around the idea that especially in large siloed organizations where marketing has been distributed across those silos and then you've got the ceo at the top saying well we want a single view of customer and we want to manage the customer experience marketing is in the ideal position to drive the change the organizational and structural changes 
to actually be the face of the brand to the market, so be the face of the customer. And that's why... Well, that's their role, isn't it? Hasn't yeah. that always been their role? Well, I think along the way it's been confused with sales and promotion yeah. and a lot of other things, but marketing at, at the very core is about being the face to the market or it the is. face of the market. And so, representing the customer in the boardroom. Absolutely. I know, we had this conversation. But this is why we're getting the Chief Customer Officer, the CMO is starting in, 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 in some companies to become the Chief Customer Officer, the CCO, yeah. who has the responsibility of Across. being that interface for the customer. So when the customer interacts with the brand at any touch point, yeah. the CCO, which is just a, a, a CMO with on a super drugs, <laughs> uh, on, on steroids, yeah. um, is starting to need to manage that. But they can't do it if their marketing resources are distributed across all their silos. So, so, well, I think there's difficult times. I mean, it's not that it's, it's easy. It's It's hard. It's all about change, and change management's never easy, is it? No. But I, I was talking with Martin Sorrell from WPP the other week about about this, and he thinks that marketing's lost its confidence, mm. and that in you know, and in particular, in the boardroom, they think they are ceding too much control to the finance officer and to the procurement fraternity and that they've lost their confidence in their voice as the customer in the boardroom and I think it's you know it's something to ponder and think on uh, and you know something that the industry needs to do something about mm. thinking about bolstering the confidence of marketing because it's the vital it's yeah. the growth generator well, for an it, organization it is, the, it is the growth generator Debbie but it is budgeted as a cost of the business Absolutely. it is not That's an investment issue. yeah and yeah. it's the first place that gets chopped Cut. if uh, because if there, are hard there is times. no there's no you know the, sales is fine if i put money into sales and i get revenue back and i get it in the short term i get it in my quarterly reporting but marketing the the great mystery but also the magic of marketing is it's about building long term value Absolutely. and it's not it supports sales but it's not directly about sales so and there's too much tactical short termism in the business now i mean those long term visions you know where are they they're probably in some of the bigger organizations but in most of the you know in, in, in most of the smaller marketing organisations, you know, we're back to the problem of the marketing um, director not feeling secure in their mm. role and believing that within 14, 18 months they'll move on. That doesn't breed long-term strategy, that breeds short-term tactics to deliver while you can, while you're still there. And you know, I, I firmly believe that that's a lot to do with what's wrong with the industry. So the big opportunity, you said before you've got this big middle group of yeah. marketers in, in the UK, is actually in that middle group. Because what we've found in the really big organisations with multiple silos is everyone's inclined to go, well, that's his responsibility or yeah. her responsibility and point to someone else within the organisation. What we've found is that in those smaller, medium-sized businesses where there is only one marketing function and one person, they can start to have the conversations that one, get them traction in the C-suite, yeah. two, can get them onto the board, and three, give them control over the whole of the face of market. Not necessarily owning it, but coordinating it. You know, having uh, influence on the sales team, having influence on the call centre, having influence over the internet and e-commerce, so they can actually bring about this change. Because I just find really large organisations are so fragmented. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great opportunity, but they need to grasp it mm. and stop thinking, I'm not going to be here tomorrow, so I'm not going to do anything. They've really got to go for it. I think that's, you know, they've got to find the energy. Yeah, to loop that right back around, yeah. a lot of what you're doing at ISBA is actually giving people best practice and next practice of what's possible for them. I guess it's yeah. up to them with what they do with it. We isn't can't it? make them do anything, but we can certainly provide them with the tools to. Yeah. Um, to provide them with the market information and what's worked for other companies, uh, etc. So that's why we do all these sort of sessions. We do a lot of networking sessions. We always try to get people to talk about how they're operating or if they've done something differently. Because if it inspires one person in the room to go back and do something, then you know you've made a step forward. I think it's just baby steps at the moment. Well, you know, it is a chaotic world or a, a complex world. Um, you know, trying things and succeeding or failing should be both seen as positive yeah. steps because if you try something and it fails, then you know to try something different. If yeah. you try something and it succeeds, share it with everyone so everyone can try it as I well. I think everybody's afraid of fa failure though, aren't they? And I think, you know, in this market, fail fast and you know, Facebook say move fast, break things. Mm. And, you know, you do need to persuade your organisation that you need a, a permission to fail culture. Because if you've got a permission to fail, then you've got permission to experiment. Mm. And you can only, you know, if you don't change anything, nothing's going to change in your business. So you've got to try experimenting with all of the new channels that are available. And, you know, they might be the one thing that makes the step change for your organisation to success. I well, guess. when I when I worked in medical research, we didn't call it an experiment of failure. We said we had a negative result. Oh, right. So you know, yeah. maybe that's just changing the language. Stop talking about. Okay. We did an experiment. Yeah. And we, you either get a positive result, a neutral result, or a negative result. So maybe that could be the uh, the language of uh, experimentation for marketers. Perhaps. I mean, I do remember I've seen Diageo speak about this on platforms, and they say they you know actively expect their brand managers to have failures because otherwise they don't learn anything. Mm. And you know, I've heard them speak about that on platforms. So, well, if, if you haven't had a failure, they say in Silicon Valley, if you haven't had three yeah. failures, you haven't tried hard enough. Well, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? I love Silicon Valley and all the things we're learning from there. Such an American attitude, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I went to Facebook in the summer in... Uh, Mountain View, it was like something out of the Truman Show. But oh, the really? people there, they're just so, they are Facebook, you know, yeah. they, they live it, they breathe it, that is it. They, they look after them like parents. So, you know, your family comes in, you get free food, you're, somebody valet parks your car when you get in in the morning because they don't want you wasting time going to look for a, Look for a car parking space. They want you working. They want your ideas. They want you constantly thinking. So, and you know, these are the models that um, traditional organisations have to look to. It's sort of always on economy. I mean, it's it's no different anywhere now. It's how you attract the best talent. It's it is. creating a culture and an environment. Yeah. Google does it as well. I mean, I think there's quite a few of those uh, yeah. companies that really have got a, uh, the right mindset. Well, we've worked with Google this year on something called the Talent Revolution. Okay. And it's looking at uh, what we did was start, surveyed, I think it was about 1,200 marketers, marketing chiefs, and we asked them about the skill sets of their teams in the digital environment, in digital skill sets. And what we've built is a, a base benchmark um, so that they can then evaluate how their teams uh, compare to other organizations. So there's a sort of digital benchmark 
and what it's done is highlighted the gaps in talent that um, these organizations have and so what we'll do is we'll build some um, workshops and some training and, and things in, uh, in cooperation with, with Google to try and plug those gaps. And it's going to become a yearly session. I mean, it's not just Usborough and Google, but it was with some other partners yeah. in the industry because we wanted to get that spread as wide as possible. So we'll be doing that again next year. So we'll look at how the markers change over the years um, because talent's a big problem. Mm. And we're going to be talking about that at our conference in March of this year. Uh, we've got some people from L'Oreal and, and people who are really concerned about talent and where it's coming from, or more importantly, where it's currently going, because it's not going into organizations, it's no. going to the tech startups and to Silicon Valley and people who are doing just more interesting things. Changing the world. I know, because particularly among the young people, the millennials, I mean, they have what, uh, what do people term them? Um, slash, they're the slash slash generation. So they'll say, I'm a brand manager slash DJ slash slash food. And they don't, want these, they don't want these linear routes inside mm. organizations. They do spaghetti. It's spaghetti careers. They want to curve around all over the place. They want, you know, and they're not interested in going into one organization and, you know, working their way slowly up. They want speed. They want excitement. They don't want to. So it's a very, these are the generation that are coming through that our companies have to yeah, work with. I read a report um, actually through um, media brands yeah. where Gen Y and the millennials will have six separate careers in their lifetime. Now, I've had three. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you've had, what, two? Three. three. I mean, you've had three. agency planner and this. Yeah. yeah. So, oh yeah, we're halfway there. Yeah. And we're, well, I'm a baby boomer. So, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, we obviously started a trend that's followed through <laughs> to what Gen Y and the millennials. They're just, you know, taking what we started and speeding it up. And they're just not loyal. They're not loyal to anyone. They don't mm. have loyalties. They are just, they just want experience and interest. And I guess... I bet most of them really want to start their own thing, don't they? They don't really want to work with an organisation. So it's a big challenge for the industry. Absolutely. How do you attract, you attract these the people? Best talent. You know, I don't think they're even any longer wanting to go off and work for management consultants or no. you know the high-paid um, starting salaries that they get in the city. I, I just think they crave more interest and more curve balls and ways well, of they want they want to make a difference. They yeah. want to feel they want, they to, want to feel definitely. like there's a purpose to yeah. what they do. Yeah. And they want recognition. And recognition is not just financial. Recognition yeah. is actually about being seen as someone who is making a difference, who's doing something worthwhile sure. and has purpose in their lives. So I don't know, is your, your Gen Y what I would call centennials? So the next people after millennials? No, uh, the one before. One before, XY, okay. XY, right. XY and then millennials. Okay, because we're now thinking about the centennials, the, the 12 trip, yeah. to 18s, and they're even worse. They're super guarded with their... Um, they've learned from the millennials that they don't want to splash everything all over the internet. They're much guarded about their privacy, about their data, about their information. And, you know, I don't know how you attract them. So you've got yet another lot coming up who, you know, for what purpose is even more important mm. to them. So they're all just really different sets of people. So that overlay that on a complex market and you've got an even more complex. I'm uh, starting to understand why you described your brain as a Jackson Pollock painting because there's is. just bits of colour and <laughs> shape and everywhere. <laughs> but, it is. Um, look, this has been fantastic. Thank All you right. for making time to have a chat. All right. Thank so, you for coming over. Oh, it's been Mars. my pleasure. As soon as you asked, I, uh, I 
tried, made sure oh, I could I rearrange to be here. So thanks for the invitation. Okay. We'll speak soon. Yeah, thank you.